After Jason Young was indicted for the murder of his pregnant wife, Michelle, it was time to let a jury decide what had really happened in the early morning hours of November 3, 2006. Jason had already been held responsible for Michelle's death in a civil case, and he had even given up custody of his two-year-old daughter, Cassidy, so he could avoid answering questions about Michelle's death under oath. Would he choose to testify in his own defense in a criminal trial? Welcome to another episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. Join me for another captivating true crime story where physical, spiritual, and emotional safety takeaways are waiting for us. If you're listening, I believe you have a unique calling to become a different kind of PI. Not a typical private investigator, but a person of impact. Discover how you can easily step into this role and make a profound difference in someone's life. This is Season 4, Episode 25. Our book this week, like last week, is Murder on Birchleaf Drive, the true story of the Michelle Young murder case. The host of Murder Shelf Book Club podcast, my friend Joe McCracken, is back with us again with more fascinating takes on this case. So let's dive into our story at the intersection of faith and true crime. In last week's episode, Jason's mother-in-law, Linda, as the administrator of Michelle's estate, had filed a civil suit to have Jason declared to be Michelle's killer under North Carolina's Slayer statute, and she won. Now it was time to see if a criminal jury would think Jason was guilty of murder. You might remember from part one that Jason had lawyered up immediately, and by the time the trial rolled around, he was out of money. He was going to have to use a public defender. On June 7, 2011, nearly five years after Michelle's death, jury selection finally began in Jason's trial. In the prosecution's opening remarks, they spelled out how Michelle had lost her life at just 29 years of age while she was five months pregnant. They said that Jason had beaten her to death while their two-year-old daughter Cassidy was in the house. Prosecutors don't technically have to provide a motive or prove one, but they try to so they can give the jury a reason that such a horrific act happened. They said that Jason just wanted to live like he was single again party and get drunk with his friends. He didn't want his mother-in-law to live with them because he felt she would be criticizing how he treated Michelle. I think if I had been her, I'd have been criticizing how he treated Michelle too. Prosecutors laid out their theory of Jason's movements the night Michelle was killed. They mentioned the suddenly malfunctioning security cameras at the hotel that Jason checked into. They begged the jury not to let Jason get away with murder. The defense attorneys, of course, hammered on any point that they could to cast doubt on the state's evidence. None of their points excluded the possibility that Jason was involved. I thought it was so interesting that they actually conceded that Jason basically was a jerk, but they wanted the jury to believe that he was a great father. His affairs were acknowledged, and his attorneys were right to remind the jury that being an adulterer doesn't mean you're a killer. Michelle's sister Meredith told the jurors about finding her sister dead after Jason had asked her to stop by his and Michelle's house. Other witnesses included the medical examiner, Michelle's best friend Shelly, employees of the hotel where Jason checked into the night of Michelle's death, and the manager of the gas station who remembered an angry white man buying gas with cash at her station in the early morning hours of November 3rd. Women who had had affairs with Jason also testified including the one that he had met when she was just six years old and he was her camp counselor. Ew, it 
it's not real specific in the book when they actually started having an affair, but still, that's just ew. A former fiancé testified that after they had had an argument, Jason attacked her and ripped off her engagement ring. After a series of criminologists testified about trace evidence, the prosecution rested. The defense tried its best to show a different side of Jason. They called his mother to the stand to paint a glowing picture of him and his marriage. She described him as being devastated by Michelle's death. Jason's stepfather, younger sister, and friends testified as well. For reasons I will never, ever understand, the prosecution did nothing to prepare for the possibility that Jason might actually choose to testify. When he did indeed take the stand, they were completely unprepared. If his lawyers finished questioning him before the day was over, prosecutors would have no time to prep at all. As it turned out, they got an hour over lunch to prepare for the most important cross-examination of the trial. That's going to be a nearly impossible task for even the best lawyers on the planet. On direct examination, Jason denied murdering Michelle, and he was able to put a beautiful rosy spin on their relationship. He cried when he was asked about the baby boy Michelle was carrying, who had, of course, died with her. He denied the worst of the accusations that prosecution witnesses had hurled at him. He had an answer for every piece of circumstantial evidence. The lead prosecutor hammered him on infidelities that he had already admitted to. She also asked him about giving up custody of Cassidy in order not to have to answer those questions in a civil suit. She also talked about how he had declined to speak to police on the advice of his attorney. What she did not ask him about was the murder or the murder scene. She didn't ask him a single question about his movements the night of the murder. She didn't ask him about the enormous life insurance policy he had insisted that they take out on Michelle's life. Jason's cross-examination lasted less than an hour. After several days of deliberations, the jury was deadlocked six to six. The judge instructed them to keep on trying, but they never moved the needle far enough to reach a unanimous verdict one way or the other, so the judge declared a mistrial. In all honesty, I've got to say that the prosecution was lucky that they were going to get a chance to address the shortcomings in their handling of Michelle's case and try Jason again. A date was set for Jason's second trial, and ironically, it fell on what would have been his and Michelle's anniversary. Jason was let out of jail on bond to wait for the next trial to start. We'll cover that next week. Let's talk about that trial, because trials fascinate me. And again, I know that I'm Monday morning quarterbacking here a little bit, but, um, you know, it, it we're going to talk about a pet peeve of mine because I know that you also love to look at evidence. Yes. What's available, what's admissible, strategy with your evidence. My pet peeve with defense attorneys is when they argue, well, all of the evidence is circumstantial. There's nothing wrong with circumstantial evidence. Absolutely not. In fact, when you look at jury instructions, what the mm -hmm. judge tells juries before they go deliberate is that one is not preferred over the other. Direct evidence is not, you know, quote, better evidence than circumstantial evidence is. And this is a super simplistic way of looking at it. But if I wake up in the morning, I wasn't awake for the actual sunrise, but I wake up in the morning and I see that it's light outside now. I know the sunrise happened. 
Yes, that's circumstantial evidence. If I actually witnessed the sun rising, that would be direct evidence. But they both lead to the exact same conclusion. Yes, the sun came up. Well, I I hate to say it, but how many times at a murder trial do you have someone standing in the room when the murder takes place and watches whatever go down? Call me crazy, but I think most people who are going to be in this kind of emotional hijack and in this state of rage and bludgeon somebody 30 blows is probably not doing it with an audience. That happens. I mean, there's cases where it does happen when someone is watching this and they're horrified and, oh, my gosh. But not, it's just not. If that's what's required in a trial, then nobody gets convicted. Well, if so-and-so is in the room and you have all of this other, you know, these, these breadcrumbs being being delivered, we are allowed to use common sense. And we need to use common sense. And there was quite a bit of evidence of premeditation. Yes. And a ton of planning. Mm-hmm. And so you're exactly right. Once in a while, there may be something that happens in front of witnesses, but domestic violence are typically not those kind of cases unless the, the witness is a child that lives in the home there. But when you're planning something ahead of time, you're going to plan it so that there aren't any credible witnesses. Exactly. And I I know we'll get to this because I really want to focus on evidence. There was Mm two-year-old. There was that little girl in that house when that happened. We'll get to that. Let's No, let's go ahead and talk about (sighs) that because (sighs) I think that there was also circumstantial evidence about how he treated her. Mm -hmm. There is evidence that she was drugged. Yep. He was a pharmaceutical salesperson. He understood the effect of drugs. He would know how much to give Mm -hmm. a toddler so that they would sleep, not be harmed, but sleep. Mm -hmm. And I think he had a twofold reason for that. And this is my conjecture. Obviously, people testified over and over and over that he was a good dad, Mm -hmm. which doesn't mean a whole lot to me because none of us is 100% good. None of us is 100% evil. You can be a good dad. And still suck at being a husband. Oh yeah. So I don't. I don't think that him being a good dad is evidence that he did not kill Michelle. Correct. But I think a second reason that he drugged her was so she wouldn't be in his way. You know how toddlers yes. are. They're right at your feet. They're clinging. They're doing all this stuff. He didn't. He knew he was going to beat his wife to death. He didn't want to accidentally harm his child that's at his feet. And so he gave her something that would just make her sleep. And he also sent his sister-in-law to the mm -hmm. house. Oh, hey, check on this for me. And I think that was twofold. He wanted his daughter found and taken care of. And he wanted to control how Michelle's body was discovered. Yes, that's that control factor that comes in there. But I'm glad you mentioned the drugs. This little girl leaves little bloody footprints all over the place. He knew her mother is dead at this point. Where is he while she is leaving little footprints? He's cleaning himself up. He drugs Cassidy. He puts her in the bathroom where there were bloody fingerprints and whatnot on the back of the door until the drugs knocked her out, which is why there's so much in that bathroom and on the wall. But she's put in the bathroom. She falls asleep and he cleans her up why she has no memory of being cleaned or clothes changed or whatever. 
However he did it, he did it. And he, of course, takes this with him. He's good. I wanted to know if there was any kind of search on how you clean up blood splatter because there really was very, very little. Um, and who and else Who else would worry that much about the child? Your random burglar is not going to. Yeah, yeah who would clean her up? Because when, she, when they find her, this little two-year-old is completely clean under the covers in her mother's bedroom with her mother's dead body right there. So while, yes, he is concerned about her, you're right. He wants her out of the way so he can do what he has to do. Knocks her out, plops her in bed. She sleeps for nine hours. Just drugged her up. That's why there's no no feces, no urine, no nothing. She was just out. Because what child doesn't urinate in nine hours? Right. A drugged child. That's that's what. Uh, and that that is that evidence of a loving father that he wanted her found? No. But it, to me, it is extremely obvious. When you, hey, hey, Meredith, go over and pick up the thing I left in the printer. I'm trying to surprise your sister, you know, and our sister's like, what? But your and your anniversary was three weeks ago. Right. And you've well, never tried surprise. to surprise her with a nice present before. He didn't even talk to her on their anniversary. He didn't even have a conversation with her. They're going out to dinner for their anniversary. He's on, a, on the phone call. And it comes out at, I think it was the second trial. That phone call was with his girlfriend. Yes. He said it was a business call. He had to take this business call. He's going out for their third anniversary dinner. Well, and I have I have to dog on the prosecutors a little bit. I, I, I hate to do that because, you know, they were the ones in the moment. They were plotting their strategy. They only had what evidence had been uncovered to that point. But it seems to me a little bit inexcusable that you didn't prepare for the possibility that Jason might testify. I get that his defense attorney, like most defense attorneys, would say, yeah, this is a bad idea. You're not going to stand up on cross-examination nearly as well as you think you will. But for them to just assume he's not going to testify and not be ready, what did you yeah. think when you read that part? My head blew up. <laughs> I, may, I know I might be spoiled. I've just watched the whole Murdaugh trial and and all the scuttlebutt, is he going to testify? Is he going to testify? He has to explain this. So I might be having a little Murdaugh backlash here. But the man, we should explain too, that he had said not one word to police. Right. He lawyered up immediately, never said one word. Here, don't you have to assume that he might? Especially given his personality, because he He's has demonstrated. Exactly. And those <laughs> kind of people think that they're going to be able to explain away any problems people might have with their behavior. And so, yes, I would have assumed that even, even given the best advice in the world from his attorney, that he would say, nope, I got to I gotta tell people my side. He, he was a schmoozer. Mm -hmm. He was a charmer, which is what drew Michelle in. You know, he, he does. He, he's so brilliant. He's pulled this whole thing off. Remember, he isn't arrested right away. You know, the arrest comes qu quite a number of years later. So he's thinking he's gotten away with this all this time. He had other, other legal issues we'll get into. But he doesn't, you know, he thinks he's a genius at this point. He's pulled this thing off. Oh, there's been a little, couple little bumps in the rug. But they don't have any forensic evidence. That's because I'm a genius. Well, he wasn't a genius. And let's keep in mind, 
what his occupation is. He's a salesman. Yeah. He's used to convincing people to do what he wants. Mm-hmm. And yes, so I, my product. I, exactly. And his product in this trial was selling his innocence. Mm-hmm. So I think that they were very lucky that they got a hung jury. Oh, yeah. They were, they were eight to five, innocent, not guilty. Mm-hmm. So it was teetering the other direction. But there was testimony also from the previous fiance that he had gotten violent with her, that the prosecution did not introduce before the jury. They, they kind of didn't go into that, that he was violent, that he did pull off the rings, that there is a parallel here. So there were things that they, thank goodness, had an opportunity to do after the hung jury at the second trial. Well, and something else they didn't bring up in the first trial, which, again, may have just been because they basically had a lunch hour to prepare. Yes, They did not bring up the fact that Michelle's family had used civil litigation in an effort, I think, not only to have somebody say, yes, he did this to her, but they wanted custody of that little girl because you don't want your grandchild, your niece being raised by someone that you think is a killer. Well, you certainly want contact. You've lost your sister. You've lost your daughter. All you have left is this little girl. And remember, Michelle was five months pregnant when she was murdered. So they lost another grandchild on top of this. They've got this one grandbaby, and he is really not letting them have access, certainly not where they can just love on this child. And I don't blame them for for litigating. And how do grandparents and non-parents when you have to go this route to have custody or to, and even see, I'm just talking visitation at this point, visitation with your grandchild, what other option do you have under the law, the way the laws are written? And maybe these do need to be revisited. It is the 21st century and there are all kinds of parental units going on these days. They had to sue him civilly for Michelle's death to right. prove that he was an unfit father. So they had to go through A to get to B. All they wanted to see was their niece and grandchild. But they have to go through this whole, he caused her death. Mm -hmm. They also wanted him to have to give a deposition. And And how did he avoid that? He did not respond. Nothing. He lets this whole thing go forward, never shows up in court, blew my mind. Remember how much he loves his daughter. Mm-hmm. What a great dad he is. He didn't even fight for her. He just went and had himself named Michelle's killer in the civil suit. His daughter wasn't going to find out about that in 10 years, that dad was in the civil suit. They said dad killed mom. I mean, if you love your daughter that much and you're innocent, you fight for that. Say, no, no, you're not going to call me a murderer. I'm not going to take this sitting down. He just never showed up. It was a default judgment that he he was the slayer. Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. And that also disallowed him from being able to collect her insurance. Yes. That's so I think, $4 million right. that he just let go. And I think that that just a little plug for the, the type of work that I've done in the past, civil litigation is no fun. You know, any kind of litigation really is no fun. But there are places for civil litigation when criminal proceedings 
are not being commenced. Um, maybe an investigation has been shut down. Maybe an investigation never really started and mm-hmm. you think that it should have. So know your options. If you have some sort of tragedy like this in your family, know your options and realize that you have a finite time to move in. Mm-hmm. There's no statute of limitations on murder in criminal court, but every state is going to have their own statute of limitations on any sort of um, wrongful death, personal injury, uh, even negligence, depending on on how you're structuring your lawsuit, what argument you're making. And in some states, that can be as little as one year. So that's not please. a long time. No. When oh, you no, are suffering a loss like that and just the devastation, it can take you months to be able to get up in the morning and make a cup of coffee. So you you do need to to do some research and see what it is in your state. I do not. I'm in Pennsylvania. I have no idea. Well, in Tennessee, we have one of the worst ones. It's a year. And I had some clients that that needed to go the civil litigation route to get some information to be able to to force some depositions. And it was COVID. So Mm -hmm. the courts were not, you know, you could go to the mall, but the courts wouldn't let anybody in. So that that just made me so happy. But you have to be able to build a case that is strong enough to withstand a, a motion to dismiss. Because mm-hmm. if if you don't survive that motion, depending on your jurisdiction, your clients might even get sanctions. We filed on day 364. It it took us that long to make sure we had a strong enough case to go forward. So yes, if you are in this situation, if you have a loved one in this situation, it's a hard subject to bring up, but better to talk about it than for them to say, oh my gosh, if we had done that, maybe we could have got some answers, but now we are barred by law. Right. Right. Exactly. I don't know if you want to get into it or not, but I thought about this. This They said in the book too, this is one of the, I think it was the first civil ruling that this person was the slayer. In that jurisdiction, it's, I think you're right. Yeah. In civil court that had not previously been litigated in, in criminal court. Right, and because I thought, of course, I thought of our case in Capel, Texas, mm-hmm. and uh, in that case, it took years to to get to civil court. It has not gone to criminal court, but she was found responsible for the death of this young man, and it what a, what a sense of relief. And I this is not a family member of mine. I can only imagine what the family because it. it she had said he committed suicide. And uh, no, the court said, no, he did not commit suicide. And it's a civil judgment. But here was another case that we just went through and was just litigated of a civil case before a criminal case. So people, you're right, Lori, they, they need to know that that is actually an option if you can't get the criminal charges, because there's a higher bar there. Mm-hmm. If you can't get that to, to happen, you may get more information through a civil action. And I think you'll agree with me. I'd, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this. I have learned the longer I have done this is that there are degrees of justice. I think that when most of us think about justice, it's we identify a perpetrator, we apprehend a perpetrator, we prosecute a perpetrator, and we incarcerate a perpetrator. And that's great when that happens. But sometimes for different reasons, it's just not going to happen. 
Yes. And so you you take the wins that you can get. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't always work out the way you want it to work out, but there is a, a reality check and it may not be a hundred percent, but justice is still justice. It just may take a different form than you were anticipating. And that's a win. Yes. That's a win. It, it may not be what you were expecting, but it it is a win. For our scripture passage this week, I want us to look really closely at Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 through 44, and this is from the Amplified Version. So be alert, give strict attention, be cautious and active in faith, for you do not know which day, whether near or far, your Lord is coming. But understand this, if the head of the house had known what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you who follow me must also be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect him. I just love it when the Bible just gets so practical, and it acknowledges the real issues that we're facing in this world in this day and age. And then God uses them to illustrate eternal truths. We can all understand the idea that we have to take common sense security precautions against thieves because they don't advertise when they're going to come. We also do not and cannot know the exact moment of Christ's return. Regardless of what any preacher or Bible study leader or cult leader might try to tell you, no one knows when Jesus is coming back. So we have to always be ready for it to happen. We can apply this life lesson of always being ready to today's episode. It brings me right back to the prosecutors responsible for getting justice for Michelle and her family. I could not find any solid research on how often defendants on trial for murder choose to testify in their own defense. But the mere fact that Jason could choose to do that seems to me to mean you absolutely have to prepare for trial as though he is going to testify. Here's another way to look at it. I am almost certain that my house is not going to burn down today. In fact, I'm pretty sure based on the fact that I only know one person that that's ever actually happened to, mine probably isn't going to ever. Yet I still have fire insurance on my house. Why would I do that if I didn't think I would ever need it? Because I know that if I'm wrong and I do have a house fire, my losses would be so catastrophic that I am not willing to take that risk. The prosecutors should have looked at their preparation for Jason's trial exactly the same way. Even if they were 99.9% .9 sure that he was not going to testify, the consequences of being unprepared if he did could have been catastrophic. And it's Michelle's family that would have paid the price, not the prosecutors. That's why I share these stories. Even if you think that something will never ever happen to you, or that a serious safety issue couldn't possibly exist at your church or your workplace or your child's school, you need to be ready just in case it does. I hope that when you listen to the podcast or you read my books or you look into my soon-to-be-available church safety training resources, they will all make you as prepared as you can possibly be. If you liked this episode, be sure that you check out some earlier ones. You will not want to miss the great insights that my amazing guests have shared. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time.